Everyone has a relationship with gender. What's your story? Hello and welcome to Gender Stories with your host, Dr. Alex Yantafi. Hello, Gender Stories listeners. This is your host, Dr. Alex Yantafi, and I am so thrilled to be interviewing Lex Police Faro, who is a doctoral student at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. Um, they're a gender and sexuality researcher, and I actually met Lex. I think it's about a year ago, or is it a little bit longer? It was at the Quadas Conference in Montreal, the Society for the Scientific Study of Sexuality, right? Yeah, just just over a year ago, I guess. Yeah. Um, so it was really wonderful, and I stayed connected with them on social media. And um, a little while ago, I saw that they'd done some wonderful research on romantic relationship and non-binary folks and the experiences that non-binary people have around dating and romantic relationship in a very binary world. And so I thought that that would be great research to bring to you, Gender Stories listeners. So that's why we're here today. Um, Lex, so anything else that you want to say about yourself apart from my introduction? <laughs> I, I think that's pretty solid. I just want to say thank you so much for having me on. And I really appreciate the opportunity to, um, to describe my research. It, it means a lot. Thank you so much. Oh, I'm always super appreciative of all my guests. So um, you get all the gratitude back from me because I love being able to bring really great content to my listeners and, and your research is so wonderful and I can't wait to talk about it more. So thank you for making the time on a Sunday. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's get going. So this research um, about romantic relationship and dating and non-binary folks, and you can say more about what the focus actually was, uh, was part of your master's degree, actually. So kind of your previous cor- course of study with Dr. Paz Galupo, who I also have met at the same conference I've met you at, and who's a wonderful colleague. So tell me a little bit more about what was the actual focus of your research, and, and we'll go from there. Yeah, definitely. So uh, like you had said, I worked with Dr. Paz Galupo at Towson University. Um, this was the focus of my master's thesis. So really what we were doing initially was looking at the microaggressions that trans folks experience from their romantic partners. Um, There's a good amount of, you know, things that aren't super excellent or understood by cis folks or other trans folks who share different identities than you do um, within the romantic research or romantic relationship literature. And so I really wanted to know about um, like, microaggressions are those small, brief, everyday interactions Mm -hmm. that can really break down um, relationships with folks. And that can be between like friends or colleagues or romantic partners. And especially as romantic partners are some of the most important relationships that a person might have if they choose to engage in a romantic relationship, then I really wanted to see how those relationships were being impacted by these microaggressions. And so what we did was we asked a few questions. We asked for the microaggressions that folks were experiencing. And then we also kind of wanted to flip it on its head because Mm -hmm. so much of the research about trans folks is negative, right? And there's so much more to our lives than than the negative. And so (laughs) we also looked at the micro affirmations. 
that trans folks experience from their romantic partners. And specifically those microaffirmations, we were trying to kind of find a converse, right, to the microaggressions. And so mm. uh, four different studies ended up coming out of uh, those two questions. That's amazing. Tell me a little bit more about microaffirmations, because I was more familiar with the concept of microaggressions. But like you said, there is so much research that focuses on, you know, our pain and trauma, which is very real as trans and or non-binary folks. But it's mm -hmm. also really great to kind of look at the kind of flip the concept on, on its head and see what are those moments of kind of joy and connection. So can you give me an example of what would be considered a microaffirmation in your study? Definitely. So like I had said, we were trying to kind of flip microaggression, right? So these could have been brief, small, interpersonal interactions that sought to affirm someone's gender instead of sought to question or tear it down. And so an example of this could have been something as small as maybe if someone wasn't fully out in public, the partner making sure to, in private, using their correct name and pronouns, Uh, it could have been something that small, or it could have been something as large as uh, romantic partners actively defending uh, their trans partners from family members who were dead naming them or misgendering them. And mm -hmm. so it could have been uh, brief or small, or it could have been really overt. We also had stories about folks who um, their partners taught them how to administer hormones. Uh, we had someone who I believe their partner was a diabetic and so understood how to give um, like intermuscular mm -hmm. injections and so help them with their testosterone shots mm -hmm. and things like that that are kind of brief everyday interactions that might not necessarily be seen as life changing can be small enough that they offset the kind of stigma and minority stress that trans folks experience on a day to day basis. Absolutely. It sounds like those are not very micro. They can be pretty big in a person's life, kind of those moments, right? Exactly, yeah. Really wonderful. Um, I want to go back um, to microaffirmations in a moment, but I was curious about why choose this topic of research. And of course, it could be as simple as there was a gap in the literature. As a scholar, I understand that sometimes as simple as what has not been researched yet. But um, in my experience, sometimes there's so much more that drives our own research generally. And if you felt okay to share it, I was curious about why choose this topic. Yeah, that's definitely okay. I think that, one, there was definitely a gap in the literature, right? And so that was super helpful in order of thinking of publication and how mm -hmm. that would work. But also, I feel really, really lucky to have a romantic partner who affirms the crap out of me. Um, she has really kind of, we started dating just before my master's program, and we're now engaged. And it was, it was the shift between someone previous that I had dated who kind of didn't accept my identity. And I wasn't even fully out, but even when I was exploring it a little bit, was very dismissive of it, versus someone who... Even as a cis woman, she brought me literature and she connected me with resources and she gave me language that I didn't know I needed or was even available. And so I kind of wanted to, I love romantic relationships in terms of research. I think that they are, like I had said previously, some of the most important aspects and relationships that a person can have. But I also was a little bit selfish in looking at those affirmations and trying to see if how else people were affirming their partners. 
Absolutely. I love it. I love the trajectory, right? That there's the trajectory in your research for kind of microaggression to microaffirmation and also in your own life to kind of going from a maybe not such a supportive relationship to a very supportive relationship by the sound of it. And congratulations on your engagement as well. Thank you so much. (laughs) Oh, you're so welcome. So tell me a little bit about, um, you know, what is, what are the main differences for somebody who's uh, a non-binary person, say, when they're dating or when they're in a romantic relationship compared to maybe kind of folks who have a more binary identity, whether they're trans folks or cis folks even? Definitely. So I think, like you've said previously, we live in a very binary world, right? Uh, There are so many boxes in which male or female are the only two available, and we know that there's more than that. I think that it can be a little bit different in terms of that dating aspect with, um, and even if we just shrink it down to trans folks, right? Like Mm -hmm. dating maybe a binary trans man versus a non-binary person. Um, There are ways that are kind of intuitive in in affirming a binary trans man, right? Like you use his pronouns and his Mm -hmm. name and you call him handsome and your boyfriend or your husband. And there are all these really like kind of boxes that are already set. And I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm saying that it's kind yeah. of, we, we know what to do. There's and a trajectory. Non- you go from one box to another. Exactly. And with non-binary folks. To. Yeah. Yeah. And with non-binary folks, there could be a, a difference there, right? So it's not mm-hmm. necessarily that linear trajectory. It could um, be a mix, maybe, of affirmations. It, we had participants acknowledge that they felt good when their partners switched pronouns for them, maybe moving between... Um, you know, he and they, or she and they, or even he and she, um, when they had a mix of kind of verbal affirmations. So um, beautiful versus handsome versus good looking, right? So, Mm -hmm. uh, and also really understanding that they were non-binary, right? So Mm -hmm. having this experience of not, oh, you're my boyfriend, or you're my girlfriend, but of no, you're my partner, or no, you're my date mate, or uh, joy friend is one I've heard recently because oh, they bring like you joy, that. right? It's super cute. Joy friend, that's so cute. Yeah. yeah, I think that might be my new favorite. I like sweetie because it has that sweetness, but joy friend, it's even better. I think. Yeah, <laughs> but so there's also there's there's a little more gray area, right? Mm. It's not as fixed, and so I think that that can be a difference that folks are acknowledging. Um, is that they feel really good when their partners acknowledge that they might be neither gender or a blend of genders or they might fluctuate um yeah and that might not be as intuitive for folks especially if they are either like you know binary whether they're cis or trans or whether they're just cis folks so i think that it takes a little work but i think it's super doable Absolutely. And I know for myself as a non-binary person, sometimes, you know, when I'm dating or I'm in a new relationship, there's always that kind of question like for the other person, like, do you see me? Do you really get me? Do you really understand kind of who I am and all aspects of me, not just certain aspects, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you found that uh, with your research participants, that that's something they talked about kind of really feeling, you know, how as humans we want to feel kind of seen and affirmed and we need to feel like the person that's close to us gets us kind of thing or people who are close to us get us. Yeah, absolutely. It's actually really interesting. Um, I love the title of our non-binary affirmations piece because it's uh, a quote from a participant that they said their partner had said to them. And it's, I love you as both and I love you as neither. 
And I think that that really just captures that like, yeah, you see me, you see that maybe I fluctuate or maybe I'm neither gender, but that expression of, no, I don't care. I love you. Mm -hmm. I think is, yeah. Like I think a lot of folks did acknowledge that being seen. I think it's also really interesting because the microaggressions and microaffirmations articles come from the same people. So like Mm. people were answering both questions within the data set and we asked them to think of one partner throughout the question. So they weren't saying, you know, my ex did this and my Mm -hmm. other ex did this. But one of the things that's really interesting and, and kind of intuitive, right. But it's one of those water is wet, but we need a citation for it. Absolutely. Um, (laughs) Is, is that like no relationship is perfect. Um, while in our microaggressions piece, there were folks who acknowledged, hey, my my partner did this once and it really made me not trust him for a minute. These were the same people who were saying, no, my partner really deeply affirms me in these ways. And sometimes a lot of those microaffirmations or even microaggressions were time dependent. So folks could have said, hey, when we first started dating, she wasn't really great at this. But now after a year, she's really gotten it down and is amazing. And so it really talks to one, the importance of like open communication, which I will always push for in romantic relationships and being transparent and telling your partner or partners what you want, but also just that like room for growth. I think that that was one of my favorite things to see between the two articles was that acknowledgement of like, yeah, in the past, my partner wasn't as good as I wanted them to be, but now like now they're great. And so it's really Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just something that I I really enjoyed between the two articles and they feel very, very polarized. And like, if you read them in isolation, they look very polarized, but it's also, we worked really hard to try and make sure that we acknowledge that not all relationships were all good or all bad. Everybody had a mix. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as a family therapist, I really feel that because I think there are so many messages in dominant discourse that relationships are either good or bad you know Mm -hmm. it's that polarizing which often then you know when some of us also deal maybe with the history of trauma it can be even really easy to fall into good or bad this person gets it or they don't get it right and it's so important to acknowledge that you know we're all human and sometimes it takes a moment to kind of grow into a new understanding or a new relationship and the relationships actually take work you know Mm -hmm. they take commitment they take work they take patience they take listening they take good boundaries you know great communication all the things (laughs) you know that relationships take which could be the topic of a whole other podcast episode but I'm curious about um yes what else did you find out about kind of relationships especially in terms of um, non-binary folks and romantic relationships and kind of the work they take and the kind of things that make the relationships work. Definitely. I think at the very, very baseline, acknowledging a non-binary identity is like, that's, that's like the first thing that's baseline. That's the, Mm -hmm. you know, food, water, shelter on Maslow's hierarchy. (laughs) Yeah. And so having that acknowledgement and having that, no, I see you and I know who you are. Even if, even if they don't fully get it right away, that verbal acknowledgement Mm -hmm. of no, okay, like this is who you are is incredibly important. I know that a lot of our participants acknowledged or non-binary participants explicitly acknowledged like, hey, having that identity erased doesn't feel good and that hurts our relationship romantically. But on the flip side, there's also the little things. I know that a lot of our folks described feeling really protected by their romantic partners, especially when 
Um, I, I'm thinking specifically about there was a, an active defense piece to, mm. to these affirmations. And that's when romantic partners would go out of their ways to correct people, even if it was at their own like loss. Right. So mm-hmm. even if it was somebody who had a little bit more power or like if they risked losing a position within a friend group, they would still insert themselves so that the trans person didn't have to do the emotional labor of continuing to correct someone's on their gender or on their name or on their pronouns. Um, there's also a piece of like active learning and really understanding going above and beyond to say, hey, I have researched your identity and I see that you are a gender flux person and this is what the internet says and is does this fit for you? And so not necessarily making the their partner have to um, like bear the entire burden of educating them, but really like taking that onus upon themselves. Um, there's even a really cute quote where somebody was like, oh, my partner researched and wrote a song about non-binary identities. Like, so it's little stuff like that that really show that the partner is making a really active, you know, um, really the active effort to, mm-hmm. to learn about identities and to not put that onus on their partner. Absolutely. I wonder if participants also felt like that meant their partners really cared, right? The one that extra mile, you know, to find an article, to find something to read, to kind of learn something that they didn't have to kind of teach them directly. Absolutely. I think it's a, it's an act of care in a way. It's a gift. Exactly. And especially Mm -hmm. when conversely for microaggressions, it was folks who was basically like, oh, by gender is just a Tumblr thing. Like, Mm oh, you're not really non-binary. There are only men and women. Look at science. And honestly, even if we do look at science, like folks are intersex. Like there's, Absolutely. you know, so much more than just XX and XY out there that a lot of folks don't choose to acknowledge, but are super real and exist and are within the biological literature. Yeah, I mean, gender is so much more complicated. I know one of the episodes I want to do uh, once schedules align uh, is with a feminist scientist to bring in this aspect. Yes, what about science? Let's absolutely talk about that. Um, because actually, science tells us that gender is so much bigger than than the binary. Even a science mm-hmm. sex at birth is so much bigger, but gender itself as well. So again, that would be another really wonderful topic. Um, kind of going back to this um, idea that uh, microaggressions and microaffirmations were coming from the same people because you asked your Mm -hmm. participants to focus on the same relationship. If you had to kind of pull out some kind of dating advice for non-binary folks and even maybe for the people who want to date non-binary folks or in relationship with non-binary folks from your research, what kind of advice do you think you would give? Oh, gosh. Um, I know. Sorry. I didn't say I was going to no, ask you that good. question. It just you're came good. to my it's, mind. It's hard because uh, <laughs> part of me wants to give like my own personal advice and I'm also mm-hmm. trying to base it in the research. So it's going to be a little bit of a mix here. Um, I'd say really pulling back on that, like going and searching for answers bit. Don't put all the emotional labor. So if I'm, if I'm talking to cis people here, don't put the emotional labor on your partner to have to explain every single thing non-binary to you. Um, For the most part, I know that I love to talk about myself. Um, It's part of why I'm on a podcast, let's be real. Uh, But there's also (laughs) a level of, hey, you shouldn't, like I shouldn't have to explain to you eight times why using my pronouns is important. I shouldn't have to explain to you, you know, 
over and over and over again that my name is really important to me, um, especially if there are folks who are together um, like pre-transition. I know that that can be a, a growth area and a learning curve, and I totally want to respect that. But there's also a level of, hey, if you are the person who is, you know, intimately close to someone who is telling you about their gender, which is so, so important and close to them, then you need to respect it and you need to get on board with it. There's always room for grace and there's always room for growth, but showing that you're making an effort is huge. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I guess my advice to non-binary folks is a little bit more personal, but it's be with someone who deeply values you. I think that we are told by the media and at this point by the political spectrum and sphere right now that we aren't real and that we don't exist and that we don't deserve to take up space and that our gender is fake and that you know gender equals sex equals biology equals that will always be who you are and what you what you will be and i think that we internalize a lot of that and i think Mm -hmm. that specifically going where we're valued and being with people who value us and who we don't have to uphill battle for every day in terms of just having basic respect of our names, pronouns, and identities is huge. So my baseline advice is be with someone who values you and they will show you they value you through respect of you. Absolutely. I think that's beautiful advice because even working with trans youth, um, one of the main fear that families have is who's gonna love my child, which always breaks my heart, right? When this yeah. this comes up, there's always this fear of like, um, you know, and of course that comes from cisgenderism and transphobia, and even the most well-meaning of parents and families have this fear of what's gonna happen. All I hear about is violence, you know, and the terrible things that happen to trans people because those mm-hmm. are the things that make the news, right? But yeah. they don't hear about all the trans people who have beautiful relationships and partners and children and beloveds and friends and great colleagues, right? And really affirming beautiful, thriving lives. And mm-hmm. and it's so sad to me. So that's why one of the reasons why I was so excited about your research was this aspect of the affirmation, right? Of course, let's not ignore the fact that it's still challenging to have relationships mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, when the world hasn't quite fully uh, grasped once more <laughs> yeah <laughs> that non-binary identities and experiences exist have always existed and are valid and were mm-hmm. erased you know through the ongoing settler colonial project but um you know let's really lift up that there can be beautiful relationship that there can be those moments of affirmation that there are plenty of people who are having really um complex and human and good relationships right yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that some of your participants were saying things like, um, oh, you know, my partner said that's that's not a real gender. That's that's a Tumblr thing. Right. Because mm-hmm. one of the thing we hear around non-binary identities, it's there for young people. Right. And I think yeah. the discourse is shifting a little bit. And I'm 48 years old myself. And I remember how excited a young person was. Um, actually, this was years ago. I was still in my 30s when they met me and they mm-hmm. were like, you're in your 30s and 
you're a non-binary. Well, I don't think we even used non-binary at the time. It was more like a transgender queer person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're not like 20, you know. I think there's still this idea that non-binary folks are young or it's a face or it's a more fluid thing that it's, you know, it's okay when you're in school or it's okay when you're in college, but not when you're a full-grown adult like myself say mm-hmm. so is that something that came up in your research at all that age or other aspects maybe of identities and experience kind of you know maybe class or race or mm-hmm. culture kind of made a difference to relationships yeah so I'll definitely say that our sample especially for our non-binary um, participants was super young I don't know it off the top of my head but I believe it was like under between 20 and 25 mm-hmm. so that was and that was the mean that was the average age So, um, yeah, we definitely got a little more skew for younger folks. Um, and then our sample was also like, it was an online sample, right? So we collected it via, uh, social media and online sampling. So within all online research, you're going to get a sample that's disproportionately white, disproportionately educated and disproportionately like upper ish class. And so we also did find that. And though while we know that trans folks are historically marginalized in terms of their class and in terms of their earning potential, um, we also know that our methodology kind of set us up to get those a little bit higher class and a little bit more educated and more white folks. Um, So I didn't see anything, especially in our non-binary papers, that were very distinct across race or class. But I think that there are definitely still narratives out there that I have heard anecdotally in terms mm-hmm. of genderqueer is a white people thing or non-binary mm. is a white people thing. And it really takes away the agency from folks of color in determining their own identities, especially when you think about the indigenous identities from the U.S. and the native cultures here, um, that we're really erasing that. And while we live in a white supremacist society, society we can't just erase that. Like we can't just erase two spirit folks. We can't erase folks who are from cultures other than ours that are genderqueer or are non-binary and hold those identities. And that's a huge part of their racial background. And so while anecdotally, I have heard that, I think that, I mean, I personally think it's a wrong, wrong assumption in terms of, in terms of class too. I haven't necessarily heard it in terms of class, but I will say that it is harder to get, um jobs that are considered lower class such as like retail food service industry jobs to respect any pronouns other than binary ones um again that's just kind of from anecdotal experience but i know that i have an easier time in academia than i did when i was working retail yeah that's real so and of course you know yours was like a master's project there's so so such wonderful data but also (laughs) really want to acknowledge that you had very probably limited resources in terms of how you could sample your you know time constraints you know financial constraints mm-hmm. of how you could sample your folks so it's yes it's good to acknowledge that it was pretty homogeneous but that there are experiences that are beyond the kind of homogeneous yes possibly. definitely so if you could do the research again what would you change? And you had all resources available to you. Let's go to fantasy land for a minute. Ooh, wave <laughs> no, that magic wand. One. I love right? it. <laughs> it's not how it works, but I'm going to wave that magic wand and ask the miracle question. If you could do this again with all the resources, what would you change, if anything? So I would specifically target a few different populations. For example, I would target folks of color. Um, 
I could have done a better job of that in the research that I had, but also time constraints. So I would target folks of color. I would try really hard to not just colonize that space either, just really be intentional about going in and creating relationships within the community before administering a survey. Um, and I would also try really hard to find non-binary elders. I think that I, I, I hear my own feelings echoed in what you had shared earlier with someone uh, it being excited to meet you when you were in your 30s because you know, just, just recently meeting folks who are a good amount older than me and I'm, I'll be 28 in a few weeks, mm -hmm. but knowing that I get to grow up was huge. And so, Absolutely. Mm -hmm. and so really seeing, really being intentional about focusing on recruiting and identifying and hearing the stories of folks who are much older than what the average age of the sample was really being intentional about finding folks who are in their 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, and even older, mm -hmm. would, for me, feel really impactful. Absolutely. That sounds really like a wonderful project, whether you get to do it or not. And that's tell the me dream. About, right? That's the dream, that you get to do whatever you want in academia. <laughs> it's not our works, listeners, but that's the dream. <laughs> um, tell me a little bit about what what are your hopes for your research? So it's some of the papers are out there. There's been some uh, news media interest, which is always great. Um, but what are your hopes for your research? I hope that this finds people who need it. I know that mm -hmm. there's a little bit of an ivory tower. And by a little bit, I mean a lot of a bit of an ivory tower in academia where we feel so siloed that we're in an echo chamber just giving this research to other people who maybe have a you know, um, an account with a university to allow them to access this. So I work really hard to try and make my full texts available to anyone who asks for them. Um, those are available through my research gate, which I will link to you. And yes, so the please. folks, yeah. mm -hmm. definitely. Um, and so all you have to do is contact me and I will immediately turn around and send you a copy of that. But I really want folks who are in their young 20s or even in their late teens to find this and realize, especially the affirmations article, that our lives aren't just discrimination and stigma and violence and death, that we can have beautiful, meaningful, intentional relationships with people who adore us exactly as we are and who wouldn't change us, who don't wish we were cis or who don't love us even though we're trans, mm -hmm. who deeply love us to our core for exactly the people we are. So I think that that would be my, my hope is that it reaches folks who, who need to read it and who need a little bit of hope or their parents to show that, no, your child is fine. You're fine just the way you are and you're lovable just the way you are. And if someone doesn't love you, then maybe it's not because you're trans. Maybe it's just because they're not a great person. Yeah, and it's okay to walk away. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's okay to walk away from people who don't value you or don't see you or affirm your identity. Absolutely, because there will be people who do. And exactly. I think that's, you know, that doesn't have to be this fear of scarcity. Yeah. Well, and then you carried on studying after your master's and you're now a doctoral student. And I know you're thinking probably about the focus of your doctoral research. So what's next for you? Yeah, great questions. Um, I, I'm a big nerd, so I decided I wasn't done after master's and I wanted to get all the I wanted to get the not real doctor behind my name. So I was yep. excited for that. <laughs> I have but, the, the, the not real doctor. I love it. <laughs> love it. Um, I, 
I'm really excited about looking at positive aspects of trans identity. So right now I'm working with Dr. Kirsten Gonzalez at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, and we're focusing on the positive aspects of trans identity. So right now we're looking at uh, connection to community as well as feelings of belongingness for trans folks and how that's different for trans folks specifically than within the larger LGBTQ community. Mm -hmm. And how those feelings are distinct and lead to experiences of mental, physical, and spiritual health and well-being. In the future, I'm kind of looking ahead towards my DIS research, and this isn't set in stone. um, But I would really love to create an intervention with folks who are providing reproductive resources towards transmasculine folks and masculine of center folks. Because right now, um, I know where I am in Knoxville, they do a lot of really good like lip service for trans folks. There's a good amount of, hey, check this box if you identify as trans and list your pronouns. But then if you are a trans masculine person and you're still walking into the women's reproductive health center, there's a whole lot of environmental microaggressions that are going on there based on even just like the pictures on the wall or how folks might talk about uh, body parts or talk about you in general. And so I really would deeply love to create an intervention in order to make that space a little bit safer uh, for us as non-binary and transmasculine folks who might not, might not super vibe with all the pink and all of the um, black and white pictures of pregnant bellies. So absolutely. I, (laughs) yes, I, I think that that would be really great as somebody who is a parent and you know was that their biological child and is now going you know maybe oversharing but you know this is life and I think there's a mm-hmm. lot of stigma like going from perimenopause and menopause and then having mm-hmm. to negotiate all those environments what strikes me is also the more I talk to people is uh, it's not just because I'm transmasculine that those things don't vibe with me I've talked to cis women who feel very alienated by those environments mm-hmm. too you know pink is not really their thing or maybe they have never been able to have a child and they wanted to have a child and so walking into environments they're very much set up with this idea that having a uterus means that you're going to reproduce in a certain way Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. that your uterus is going to work in a certain way it's just this huge weight of expectation so it's really crushing i mean i think transmasculine and masculine center folks are particularly impacted but what strikes what strikes me as i talk to more and more people who use those kind of reproductive services is they're actually they're alienating for all broad range of people because like you said it's a very small box right that yeah <laughs> that those services are operating in if that makes sense so I it think does that, yeah that work serves all everybody but you know that's the premise of a lot of my work that you know as trans and or non-binary folks we get to do a lot of work around gender liberation that actually serves all of us <laughs> exactly so, and what is it none of us are free until all of us are free Exactly, exactly. And it's, um, you know, the work we do. Sure, I do a lot of this work for my own communities, but mm-hmm. also I'm still in this broader community, right, of like my neighbors and my partner and my kids. And, you know, and so we all have different gender identities. And I want that, that space to breathe kind of for all of us. So what a great idea for an intervention. I hope you get to do that. And uh, what's the longer ter- term dream for you once you have the doctor non-doctor <laughs> title, <laughs> which is also a wonderful non-binary title. I love what's it. What's the longer term dream for you? I mean, really, the goal was to have a gender neutral prefix and doctor just hits it. So there it is. Right? <laughs> um, 
but I would have to say I am hoping to become a professor. I'm not really sure at what level of institution yet. Um, R1s, like Research One, top research universities, definitely have their draw. I love research. It's what energizes me. It allows me to fuel my activism in a way that feels not just important in the moment, in the way that maybe like protests or marches feel important, but in the long term. Um, both of my folks are lawyers. And so one of the things that they always remind me is that legal precedent sits on the shoulders of good research. And I hope to make a long-term impact and better the lives for trans, non-binary, gender and sexual minorities, whoever needs it. I would love to, so I'm hoping my work comes across in that kind of way. Um, yeah, not super sure at what level I'd like to teach at and work at, but if I have the opportunity to continue doing research that I love and to continue working hard for trans folks and for queer folks, then I think that personally, I would feel like that had a lot of meaning for me and would give me a very meaningful life. And yeah, uh, I also work-life balance is important too. So I guess another long-term <laughs> goal is to cook a lot of good food and go on a lot of fun adventures. That sounds like a that's a, a good thing to aim for, especially in academia. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the the work-life balance, yes. <laughs> it's, a, it's a bit like the microaggression, microaffirmations, you know, find the place where there can be growth and a good balance and, yep. and plenty of affirmation of that good goal of life-work balance. That's great. Um, so my last question usually is, is there anything that I have not asked you about that you were really hoping to talk about when uh, you agreed to come onto the show? I think we hit on just about everything. I think the only thing that I really want to underscore is to, especially younger folks who are, who might be listening, there are going to be tough times and a lot of people are going to tell you it gets better no matter what. It does get better. You have to keep working. You have to keep moving forward. Whatever darkness that is happening will pass and you will, you will see light. And I know that sounds a little cheesy, but those are words that I really needed to hear when I was a teenager. And so I hope that I hope that that hits somebody else the way I needed it to hit me. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. And uh, one of the wonderful things that, I mean, you said many wonderful things, but one of the wonderful things you said was that you really want your research not to be locked um, behind a paywall and you wanted mm -hmm. to make it accessible. So mm -hmm. I will put this in the episode description as well. But if people want to find out more about your work or want to read your research, where, where should they go? Definitely. So my name is a little bit long. Uh, so I will say it and then it'll be spelled out in the episode description, Absolutely. but my mm -hmm. name is Lex Police Pharaoh. And if you Google me, I think one of the first things that pops up is my research scholar or my research gate. Um, and feel free to request any publication, uh, feel free to just message me with questions and I'm super, super responsive. I love connecting with other folks. I'm an extrovert. So please ask me questions. I will definitely respond. And if you are curious about any of my research, ask for it and I will send it to you as soon as possible. Oh my God, I'm so grateful for extroverts. I'm not one. So I'm always very <laughs> grateful for extroverts. I'm like, yes, you have so much more energy socially. I love it. So um, listeners, don't be afraid to reach out to Lex. They made a very explicit invitation. So uh, if you want to read their research, please do so. And if people want to follow you on social media, do you have a preferred kind of social media channel that people can follow your research at? Definitely. So my Twitter is at Lex Police Pharaoh. 
And I will also link that to you as well. Absolutely. Well, I'll have that in the episode description as well. That's great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I am so grateful for you making the time to make your research even more accessible. I think this is one way to kind of bring research to a broader audience is to talk about it. And I love talking about research as a recovering independent scholar. (laughs) Um, So thank you so much. And I hope we get to talk about future research projects. And for you listeners, Thank you for listening. Uh, As always, uh, please feel free to support Gender Stories on Patreon if you want to. And if you want to find out more about non-binary issues, you might want to read the latest book that Mac John Barker and I have written, Life Isn't Binary. And also, of course, you can always um, read How to Understand Your Gender if you have questions related to gender. Thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting the show. And if you have any questions, and in fact, please do reach out and let me know if you have any questions, comments, or episodes or topics that you want me to cover, you can reach me at genderstoriespodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much. Thank you.